Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Today, I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Erickson, who's a sleep medicine physician and insomnia expert. In today's episode, we mix up the traditional interview format a bit, and instead, Daniel and I trade off describing our favorite myths and misconceptions about sleep and insomnia. If you struggle with insomnia or difficulty sleeping, and you've tried all the usual sleep hygiene tips without success, you're in for a treat. Daniel Erickson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. I'm so excited. Um, You're a fellow sleep insomnia nerd like myself, Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about sleep myths and misconceptions, um, which is, I know, a subject we're both uh, pretty passionate about. Um, just real quick, what's your um, what's your background when it comes to uh, sleep and helping people with insomnia? Right. So um, I'm a sleep physician, which means I'm a medical doctor. Uh, my core specialty is actually in pediatrics, but then I did a subspecialty in sleep. So I'm a sleep doctor and currently I'm working full-time as a sleep physician in a traditional sleep center. So I see mostly patients with sleep apnea, but a a good amount of insomnia, restless legs, other things as well. But I'm really passionate, as you know, about insomnia. So I I host my own podcast slash YouTube where we talk about insomnia and uh, I'm working on an app for insomnia, et cetera, et cetera. So really interested in insomnia. Yeah. And there's just so many, the the real reason I wanted to get you on is because, um, I mean, you're a smart guy, you're, you're a knowledgeable guy about this, but we both kind of share a passion for um, misconceptions with sleep and insomnia, of which there are just many. So I thought we'd structure this um, episode a little differently in that we'll just kind of trade off listing our favorite, so to speak, misconceptions about sleep and insomnia. Um, and we'll just kind of go down the list until we run out of stuff. Sounds, sounds really good. And uh, as you know, Nick, we talked about how many, and I said, oh, should we do five each? And you said, no, let's do 10 each. And I- I initially thought like 10, yeah, that's quite a lot, but it literally took me like 10 minutes to come up with 10, 10. Right. So that was not hard at all. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So why, why don't you lead off? What's your, uh, what's your favorite misconception about sleeper insomnia? Absolutely. So uh, I, I thought about like, let's just start with the real big ones. And I'm sure, I'm sure this is on your list too. The real big one that you need eight hours of sleep, uh-huh. you know, classic one. You always hear uh, that you know you should you have to get eight hours of sleep or uh, you know a kind of variation of that one which is you need seven to nine hours of sleep so that that is my the first one on my list yeah so what's well but isn't that true Daniel I mean that that's what I, I read every time I google sleep hygiene tips and that's what my doctor always tells me and that's what all my relatives are telling me so what do I not eat, need eight hours? Like, what's the deal? <laughs> you know, that, that is the fascinating part of this myth is that it is so widespread. We hear it all the time, as you say, from neighbors, from our doctors, from like these, you know, uh, institutions, etc. And um, I think I want to start debunking this one with, uh, you know, talking about how much people actually sleep. And there's, there are big studies, good data on this. So... Here's the thing. If you ask a, you know, a bunch of, of people that have no trouble sleeping, healthy adults, how much they guess that they sleep, 
they will say about seven hours. Very, you know, uh, you know, people uh, will say, you know, the, the answer will vary, but on average, seven hours is, is what people believe. That's how much people believe that they sleep. So now, if you actually objectively check those same individuals who said they slept seven hours on average, they actually sleep, guess what, six hours and 15 minutes or so. So people sleep objectively measured about six hours and 15 minutes. So that in itself tells us that, you know, there's no way eight hours is ideal or should be recommended. And just uh, one more thing to add right away here is, you know, there's, I forgot this one. I realized I forgot this myth, but the, now this kind of a little bonus myth within this first myth then that, you know, we often hear that, um, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago before the industrial revolution, we used to sleep a lot more. And now we, we can't travel back in time, but guess what? We can study hunter-gatherer type societies that still exist today. And people have done that. So people have gone to like Botswana and, um, Namibia, Tanzania, and uh, and have put these uh, um, you know trackers on people in those uh, societies, and guess how much they sleep? Six hours and twenty minutes or so, exactly the same amount as people do here in, in, in the industrial world on average. Wow, yeah, that's really cool research. Um, yeah, it's, people are always shocked when I tell them all these guidelines about how much sleep we apparently need. They're based on sending out questionnaires to healthy sleepers and just asking them to estimate how much sleep they get on average each night. <laughs> like right. hardly rigorous research <laughs> on which to be based. And, and then when people do studies, like you're suggesting, comparing people's self-report to what they actually sleep objectively, there's this pretty huge discrepancy. Um, so yeah, that's a big one. The, the other thing I like to point out with this myth is that there are kind of two like sub myths kind of hidden in this question or, or in this statement that everybody needs eight hours of sleep. And, and I think the first one is also that one idea baked in there is that everybody needs the same amount of sleep, which is just bonkers. Like <laughs> it, it, it's something that just varies quite a bit across different people. You know, there, there are plenty of people who sleep, you know, actually sleep about six hours per night and that works for them. Um, and there's plenty of people whose baseline is more like, seven and a half, even eight, right? And that works for them. But this idea that everybody should sleep exactly eight hours is just, it's, it's bonkers. It's like saying everybody should be five foot 10, you know, <laughs> like it's just not realistic. And then the other one, the other one too, that's kind of assumed in this statement, um, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, but it's the idea that we should get eight hours of sleep every single night, which also, if you just stop and think about it a little bit, doesn't make any sense at all because our the amount of sleep we need varies a lot depending on circumstances and what we do. If if you run a marathon, you're probably going to need a little more sleep than if you sat around on the couch and watched Netflix all day long, right? So the sleep system is dynamic by design. It's supposed to kind of respond and flex depending on your circumstances. Or if you're sick, for instance, like your body's going to have you sleep more if you're sick because it needs to do more, you know, sort of uh, restorations, so to speak. So I think that's important, like that sleep is a dynamic, flexible system, um, both within individuals, but then between individuals too. 100%. I agree 100%. And I, I'll just add a, 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 just a, a one more thing to that, which is, you know, on the lines of how, you know, there's this uh, myth baked in that every night should be the same. Well, we don't expect every day to be the same. You know, we don't expect um, 
to feel the exact same way uh, at noon every day as we do at 4 p.m., at 6 p.m., etc. We expect every day to be a little bit different. So why should we expect every night to be exactly the same? You mm. know? Yeah, that's a great point. All right. So my, um, I think can, my, can, I add, my... can I add one more thing, Nick? Yeah, go for it. One? Real quick, because this is such a big one. I, I, I've wondered, like, where does it come from? Where does this eight hour myth come from? And coincidentally, somebody sent, sent me a link today to, to an article where the, the authors talked about this myth, and they came to the same conclusion I have that it's just convenient. I think it just came about because, you know, there are 24 hours in the day and a night, and a third of that is eight, and it's kind of a nice <laughs> round number. It's a third. So I think that's I think that's where it came from. Wow. Yeah, that's that's amazing. <laughs> um, okay, so one of my favorite uh, kind of sleep myths, and this is especially true, I think. I think it's true of anyone, but it's especially true if you struggle with your sleep, um, whether you have full-blown insomnia or not. But the, the idea that I should go to bed at the same time every night, um, this one is like really baked into the kind of culture around sleep too. And so I think in general, if you ask good sleepers, what their sleep is like, one of the things you'll find is they do tend to go to bed at the same time every night. So I think we've we've extrapolated from that that going to bed at the same time every night causes good sleep, which is not necessarily true. And, and one of the things I'm sure you see, and I definitely see in my work with um, insomnia, is a very common mistake people make is they get into bed because the clock says it's time to go to bed. I always go to bed at 10 and the clock says 10, so I need to go to bed but they're not actually sleepy. And so they get into bed and they're not sleepy. And then they start wondering, hmm, why am I not sleeping? Like, what's wrong? I'm not falling asleep. Normally I fall asleep. And they start worrying. Well, is, you know, is something really wrong with me here? Like, is my insomnia coming back? Or what's gonna happen tomorrow if I only get six hours of sleep instead of seven? I've got the big presentation at work. And then the more they start worrying, of course, the less sleepy they're gonna get, right? And multiply this over days and weeks and months and you have people they're associating their bed with worry right and arousal all because they got into bed before they were actually sleepy which creates this association of when i get in bed i get worried and i get anxious and therefore i can't fall asleep so i think a really key sort of insight is generally speaking you should go to bed when you're sleepy not just because the clock says it's 10 o'clock what do, you, what do you think about that one? Yeah, I not much more to add there, Nick. 100%, the, the clock cannot tell you when you're sleepy. And um, I think, um, I, I, I'm not sure, yeah, I think it probably comes from, as you said, this myth probably comes from the fact that most people that don't have trouble sleeping go to bed about the same time. And then this, this, uh, this has become part of sleep hygiene, you know, these consulate, this kind of laundry list of things you quote unquote should do if you're not having trouble sleeping. And what I see is that most people, start having trouble sleeping for, you know, uh, some random reason. And then they, they find this recommendation as part of sleep hygiene. It says you should go to bed at the same time every night. And then as you say, that backfires. They, they toss and turn a lot. They associate the bed with not sleeping, et cetera. So yeah, 100% agree. This is, a, this is a big one. So I think a good point to piggyback on this one, which is sort of a similar myth that um, it'll sound like I'm splitting hairs when I first say it, but it, it's important. And that is people think they should go to bed when they're tired. Um, which I always make a big point when I work with my clients to distinguish feeling tired from feeling sleepy. 
And, and the reason is sleepiness is a very specific phenomenon. It's, it's your body basically telling you you're ready for sleep. And the, the giveaways are usually heavy eyelids or you're actually kind of nodding off, right? <laughs> um, but fatigue, while it, so when you're sleepy, you're often tired. But just because you're tired doesn't mean you're sleepy, right? And the, and the example is, I'll go back to the, the marathon example. If you run a marathon, you are going to be dog tired. Nobody falls asleep after running a marathon. <laughs> so just because you're tired, right, there's all sorts of things that can contribute to fatigue, including stress or, you know, physical exhaustion or, you know, emotional kind of disturbance, all sorts of things can go into tired. But a very common mistake is people getting into bed because they feel tired, but they're not actually sleepy. And then you get into that same problem of you're in bed, but you're not falling asleep. And then you start worrying about it. hundred uh, percent. I, I thought about that as you were, you know, talking about this, um, this problem getting to bed early, I, I thought about that myself, that, the, that people often confuse fatigue and sleepiness. And I, I had a recent, uh, you know, a viewer on my YouTube channel who had like 30 years of insomnia and she wrote me this like success story. And, and one of the three things she identified as a key was telling, uh, you know, sleepiness from fatigue. And again, 100% agree with the second part of this too, that a lot, a lot of people can't, you know, make the conscious decision to like wear themselves out and then are kind of disappointed when they've been, you know, running for two hours every day and they're still not sleeping, well, guess what? You know, running can make you tired, but not necessarily sleepy. Yeah, yeah. All right, what do you got? What's your next one? All right, so next one, I, I chose another, I think a huge one, which is actually also kind of implied in the eighth hour myth, which is if you're not getting eight hours, then bad things are going to happen to you, meaning they're going to be like health issues. You're going to have health issues. And this is a huge one. People believe that if you're not getting enough sleep, you are at high risk of having Alzheimer's disease, uh, you know, immune system compromise, uh, cardiovascular disease, even cancer, all kinds of things. And uh, what I, there are a couple of things that I really want to point out to, to, uh, to debunk this one. And the first one is just from like observational studies. When you look at huge studies, there was one that came out like early 2019 where they had a, a, a total of like 47 million people included, some of which had insomnia uh, and some of which did not. And when you looked at just a life expectancy, longevity, it was exactly the same, you know? That's important. And then another part of this, you know, which I think is important is the only way that you could prove causality, the only way you could prove that insomnia causes a health issue would be to take, let's say, 2,000 people and make half of them have insomnia, make the other half not have insomnia, then follow them over like 10 years and see in which group did we have most health issues. And as you can tell, that has never been done and it's not, it's never gonna happen. So there is, you know, we're not gonna have in any foreseeable future that I see uh, any proof that insomnia or short sleep causes any health issues. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, and I think just for, um, I know you and I are kind of research nerds and we, we pride ourselves on being really up to date on the research and thinking carefully about all these studies we hear in the media. But I, what I think what you're pointing out is most of the studies you see saying that, um, you know, if you, if you don't sleep, you know, eight hours, you're at more risk for Alzheimer's or something like that. What those are observational or correlational studies, which means they just have this big group of people and they say, oh, look, 
people who have Alzheimer's also report only getting, you know, big air quotes on only, only getting seven hours of sleep each night. Now, the problem with that is, so there's a relationship. Those two things are related, but that does not mean that one of them causes the other, right? It could be that there's some other variable in between, like people who, um, you know, don't sleep as much or, or only sleep seven hours per night. Also, I don't know, um, there could be all sorts of intermediate variables, like they um, have lower socioeconomic status or something, right? Which could be more of a risk factor for some other health outcome or, so you, you have to be really skeptical of any kind of study that says, we think these two things are related because they go together. That doesn't carefully control for, we did this, we sleep deprived people, and then we saw this, they got Alzheimer's. And those kind of studies are actually incredibly rare. Exactly, absolutely, 100%. And, you know, the way I explain, express it is taking the, you know, the ashtray analogy that ashtrays are like highly linked to lung cancer. But guess what? Getting rid of your ashtrays is not going to make a difference. Ashtrays do not cause lung cancer. That's, that's you know, <laughs> right. I think that's a good one. And, and I want to sneak one more thing in here, which is, <clears throat> interestingly, uh, and I'm, I know you know this too, Nick, is that if you look at these association studies, uh, sleeping eight hours is just as quote unquote dangerous as sleeping like, you know, four hours. The, the, the correlation between like health issues and long sleep, meaning eight hours or more, is much stronger than, than uh, you know, short sleep. Yeah. And I think both of us would agree too, right? That, um, we're not trying to say that sleep doesn't matter or that you should just get four hours of sleep every night. Like, of course, like getting something like seven, even eight hours sometimes is, is great. I think the point is there's a lot of unintentional kind of fear mongering about sleep that ends up um, having the unintended side effect of making people more worried and neurotic about sleep, which totally backfires because it, it, the more worried you are about something, the less likely you are to be sleepy um, and to sleep well. So I, I, I want to be clear on that. Like good sleep is, is important, right? Everybody knows like we all feel better when we sleep well. And, you know, there probably are, you know, I'm sure like physiologically you do um, run more optimally when you're getting, you know, the right amount of sleep, whatever that is. Um, but the, the key thing is you don't have to be afraid of not getting enough sleep, I think. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, You're the yeah. doctor. Hundred <laughs> percent. But it's it's a it's a interesting dynamic because people often see me and expect me to say you got to get more sleep. Sleep is super important. But I know that a as we've talked about, there's actually no evidence that short sleep or insomnia causes any health issues. But more importantly, the reason you and I talk so much about that is that. The only way you can get good sleep is if you're not worried about sleep, if you know, if you actually de-emphasize de- the importance of sleep. So it's an interesting dynamic because often I see patients in clinic and I'm the sleep doctor and I'm trying to convince them that sleep is not that important, you know, in my effort of getting them to get amazing sleep, of course. Right. And this especially applies to people who are struggling with their sleep. I mean, that's the thing about if you're a good sleeper, the reason you're a good sleeper is you don't really think that much about it. <laughs> you just kind of, it's just something you do, which is in a lot of ways, sleeping is like breathing, right? Your body just does it. Your body knows perfectly well how to sleep. You don't have to try hard to sleep. And in fact, trying hard tends to interfere with your body's natural sleep process. And then once you start getting in there and messing with it, 
that's where insomnia starts to rear its ugly head, I think. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. All right. Um, so I've, I've got a few good options here. I'm, I'm uh, weighing which one I should do. Um, how about this one? This one's fun because I feel like this has been uh, in the media a, a lot late, like the last few years, especially. Um, and this one is, I need to be really careful about blue light exposure before bed. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think the thing with this is there there is some research that shows that this particular you know, sort of wavelength of, of light, which comes from, you know, LEDs and, and sort of computer screens and TVs and stuff like that. There is some evidence that it, it interferes with, among other things, um, melatonin production, which is related to um, not, it's not like melatonin causes sleep, but it's, it's related to sleep. So that there are a few studies that show, for instance, people with a lot of blue light exposure before bed do sleep a little bit less than people who don't have much blue light exposure. One interesting thing is if you actually read the research, the the differences are minuscule. It's like minutes. You know? so <laughs> right. like people who got exposed to a ton of blue light sleep like five minutes less than some, which does not matter at all. It's totally inconsequential. Um, the other thing that I, and I'd be curious to see what your take on this, because I've seen some research um, that suggests that the the influence of blue light on your ability to sleep is related to age as well and that there does seem to be a more significant effect of blue light on children's sleep um again we're not talking huge or dramatic um but that it's virtually nil by the time you get to middle age and certainly older age um so i, I think that so let me give you a let me pause there and let you chime in daniel um do you have any you have any thoughts on that well i i my first thought here is i I, uh, to me, this is a myth. To me, it is a complete myth. And uh, I, I want to say I haven't personally really, uh, you know, um, t- taken a deep dive into like blue light and, and like pediatric sleep. But I, I distinctly remember a couple of months ago coming across this like uh, professor at some university who, ha- who had done that. And he was shocked to find that there was nothing there. He, he was shocked to find that actually there was no... Um, no evidence that uh, blue light affects, uh, you know, uh, sleep in any significant matter in any significant way in children. So, I consider this a myth. I consider it a total myth. And um, I want to. I can. I can actually uh, spin off on this a little bit more and say, like, w- one thing that was on my list was that you know, coffee causes insomnia. That's uh, a myth as well. But uh, you know, here's the thing: it, it, a lot of things can affect your sleep. Coffee is one of them. You know. How much you exercise? Yes. Uh, how much you eat? Yes. Uh, how you feel? Like what's happened to your day? A hundred thousand things can affect your sleep, but none of them actually cause what we call like chronic insomnia, like you know weeks and months and years of struggling. But the kind of the belief that coffee causes insomnia, the belief that you light affects your sleep, the belief that you know how much you ate affects your sleep, that causes a lot of insomnia. Okay, that's huge. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? Because I, I think that's just such an important point. Absolutely. Sorry, I lost my microphone for a second. There. Uh, my my earplugs okay. as it came out. But yeah, absolutely. So I can you know kind of say the same thing in a different way that I think is pretty effective. So a, a lot of people ask me whether this thing or this other thing is the reason that they have trouble sleeping. For example, you know I'm going through menopause. Is is my, is my hormones 
uh, out of whack and is that why I can't sleep? Or I had a car accident and I really hurt my head, you know, a while back. Is that the reason why I can't sleep? So we can, we can say that all these questions are like, the, 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 the question is essentially, is X the reason I can't sleep? And the answer to that is always the same. You know, X can cause some disturbed sleep for a while, but X cannot cause long-standing struggle with sleep. The only thing that can cause that is the reaction to X or like worrying about X, you know, or like thinking that X is the problem because insomnia thrives on attention. Attention is its oxygen. Again, going back to that person who sleeps well, the reason they do that is they pay absolutely zero attention to their sleep. So whenever you're thinking, could this be the reason I'm not sleeping? You are feeding your insomnia because you're giving it attention. So in summary, X cannot is not the reason you have insomnia, but thinking X is the reason that may be why you have insomnia. Yeah. So one of the things I do with my clients sometimes is I, I'll go to my whiteboard and I'll, I'll draw I'll draw like a pie chart on the board and and I'll I'll do this, I'll make this tiny sliver in the pie chart and I'll I'll divide that up into multiple very, very tiny little pieces and I'll draw things like how many cups of coffee you had or how close to bed you ate or, you know, all the, all these kind of typical sleep hygiene things like your cortisol levels or how much blue light you were exposed to. And so there's this tiny sliver with all these little things there, all these X's in, in your, in your <laughs> terminology. And then this other huge piece of the pie in terms of things that impair your sleep, worry, <laughs> right? Or, or technically arousal, right? And, and, and the idea is you have to think about these ter- things in relative terms. Like, yes, of course, you know, caffeine to some extent impacts your sleep a little bit, right? And it's a little bit different for different people and yada, yada. But the question is compared to what, right? And it, it is tiny in comparison to your, the effects of caffeine on sleep are way smaller than the effects of worrying about the effects of caffeine on sleep. That just blows it out of the water, <laughs> right? So, so even if you are doing 10 things that maybe contribute a little bit to not being as sleepy, like eating close to dinner or having an extra cup of coffee in the afternoon or like those things are tiny. The best thing to do is just kind of shrug them off because if you start worrying about them, that's like drinking, you know, five cups of coffee right before bed, (laughs) that level of arousal. So just to kind of reinforce that point about it's, it's our beliefs about what disturbs our sleep, not the things themselves for the most part that, that cause sleep issues. Absolutely. I just have to add this little thing here, which is, uh, Sleep hygiene, for anyone out there who doesn't know what that is, is this list of like, you know, uh, things you quote unquote should do to sleep better. You know, don't eat before this time, don't uh, expose yourself to bright light, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem is that, you know, if you, if you have that laundry list, it creates, again, speaking of beliefs, it creates a belief that you can control sleep by getting all these little things checked, all these check marks, do this right, do this right, which then when you don't sleep, you're thinking, oh, it's this thing, or it's that thing, and it just you know, reinforces like, um, worry, you know, it creates more worry and, uh, and, and more trouble sleeping. So, you know, just adding that one. Yeah, that's a great point. And really that's, that's why I had you on this episode for that. We are not talking about how to get good sleep. That is not the title of this episode. <laughs> it's sleep myths and misconceptions because largely getting, 
And I don't even know that I believe in the idea of good sleep. I think there's adequate sleep and there's not adequate sleep. <laughs> um, getting adequate sleep, it's much more about what you don't do than what you do. And primarily that comes down to what we call sleep effort, which is exactly what you're describing, which is trying to sleep. You know, if, if you were, you know, if you got into uh, the engine of your car and tried to make your car go faster by fiddling around with the engine, something would go horribly wrong. <laughs> your, your engine is designed to make your car go on its own. It doesn't need input from you, like wiggling stuff around it. Your body knows perfectly well how to sleep. And in fact, when you start fiddling with it and tinkering with it, because of all these sleep hygiene tips and things you've read online, you're actually interfering with your bo a body, a totally natural, automatic bodily function. Absolutely. I'm kind of like just laughing, you know, laughing a little bit here because the other day I had this patient who I, I told him like the sleep system that, you know, your body sleep system is perfect. And I think I, I didn't time it well. So he was just like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not sleeping at all. And I was like, okay, well, sorry. I, I didn't time that well, but yes, I totally agree with you. It's a perfect system if you leave it alone. Yeah. Yeah. And th this is understandably frustrating for people because I mean, if you think about it in most areas of our life, um, trying harder and thinking more is the solution. You know, if you're trying to pass a test or if you're trying to get a raise at work or if you're trying to solve some problem, like thinking harder and applying more effort and working usually is good, right? But there are these, a few situations in life where it completely backfires. <laughs> and the, the metaphor I like, and I know I've talked to you before on your podcast about this, but the perfect metaphor for insomnia is the Chinese finger trap. I think everyone's seen these, um, these little tubes, you know, like usually made out of bamboo or and you put your finger in them and then your fingers get stuck. And the more you try and pull your fingers out, the tighter it gets and the more stuck you get, right? So the more effort you apply, the more stuck you are. Ironically, the way to get out of it is to actually push your fingers in to do the exact opposite of what you think you need to do. And then it, it all kind of loosens up. So that's, that's, I think probably your frustration with that client is that what we know and, and, really our main job as people who treat insomnia is to bring people around to the idea that trying more is actually the problem and doing less is actually the solution. Absolutely. hundred percent. And I just real quickly, like another analogy that I've started using or not really an analogy, just a thought was uh, to help explain this is I feel like the, the, the sleep universe is like everything is upside down and meaning uh, hard work and like diligence is punished and doing nothing, mm -hmm. nothing is rewarded. Right. Right. All right. Are you up? I'm yeah. Yeah. Right. I think so. And okay. I, similarly, I was also debating which one to, to uh, pick now, but I think this is a, I think this is a kind of funny one that I hear a lot. So uh, people have asked me, is it important to get an even number of sleep cycles? And so when, what people mean by that is, They've read that um, in a, typically, you know, people read that in a one and a half hour span, you've gone through a sleep cycle, which includes a little bit of deep sleep and a REM cycle. And then you have, you know, ideally, quote unquote, you have like, you know, or the, the question to me is like, is it really important to have an even number? Do I need four of these sleep cycles? So should I sleep exactly, you know, what's that? 1.5, like, so should I sleep exactly six? or exactly seven and a half hours right. and uh, so so that is a that for everyone out there is a total and complete myth there's why are we why are we chuckling about this oh <laughs> uh, yeah why are we chuckling I, I think to me it's like 
you know, again, I, I don't want to belittle anyone's problem, anything, anything from that. But the, the idea that you need to sleep exactly six hours or exactly 7.5 hours yeah, goes against everything we know about sleep, which is everything we've talked about so far is a passive process. It happens, you know, without you interfering with it. And then having this myth out there that you need to sleep exactly six hours or exactly seven and a half hours. So you need to get exactly four or five cycles in. It just goes, again, goes against everything we know about uh, how to get adequate sleep. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, it's funny. One of the things I think about with the, all this stuff is that we just, we, we really underestimate our body's ability to, to do its job. You know, like your, your body really knows what it's doing um, when it comes to getting sleep. And there's this whole culture, which it's hard not to see this as a monetary thing where a lot of people make a lot of money convincing regular people that they need to do all sorts of stuff and know all sorts of stuff about their sleep. Like think of all these apps that supposedly track your sleep, right? And they can show you these fancy graphs and they give you percentages of how much time you spent in deep sleep. And like, well, I mean, this is like classic marketing. Like if you want to sell a solution, first create the problem, right? And then you can, then you can sell your overpriced solution to this non-existent problem that people have. Um, so I think it's really, this is a, I think that's a great, that myth is a great example of how we've, and I don't know whether it's intentional or I think a lot of it is unintentional, but we've created a problem where there doesn't need to be one. And we've kind of made people needlessly, yeah, neurotic and worried about this thing that should not be a task. Getting, getting to sleep and staying asleep should not be a task you have to do, um, so anyway, I, yeah, got me on my no, I, I, Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I think sometimes, sometimes in the sleep world, it is very straightforward. It is some, somebody scares you so that, you know, so that you buy their product, something very straightforward like that. Other times it's, it's, I think, uh, people want to kind of, how should I put this? Um, they, they, they want to portray themselves as having the answer and like, you know, inflating their own importance. And a good way of doing that is confusing people. You know, if you tell people that sleep is really complicated, you got to do it this way, you got to, then you, know, you can come across as somebody who like, oh, you, this, this person really seems to know what they're talking about, et cetera. So I think that's uh, sadly yeah. another way that the reason mess happens. Right. Okay. So here's one um, that I think is, uh, is an interesting one. Uh, the belief is if I have a big day coming up, I should get into bed early. Um, so I hear this a lot from my, my clients who are kind of, uh, like white collar professionals, you know, attorneys, doctors, engineers, um, even athletes, right? Um, and and it comes from a good place, which is generally your your performance is probably if you want to get ideal performance, um, whether you're arguing a case in court or trying to score touchdowns, like yes, having good sleep helps, right? The problem is with this idea that, well, I'll just get into bed an hour early if I have a, a really big day coming up and I'll just get more sleep. You, the big problem, I think, is you can you cannot force yourself to get more sleep than your body actually wants, right? <laughs> um, and, and then what happens is it goes back to that initial problem where you get into bed and you're not actually sleepy. And then, well, what happens? You've got this big performance coming up the next day. So you start worrying. Oh, God. I usually fall asleep within 10 minutes and it's been 15 minutes and I'm not falling asleep. Uh-oh. You know, like, what if I don't get to sleep for another hour? Like, what, am I going to be a mess tomorrow at, in, in trial? And, you know, am I not, am I going to flub the presentation? Because I, 
And now your arousal is kicking up and you really are kind of making getting to sleep harder. And so one of the little thought experiments I always ask my clients is, okay, let's say you have a big uh, performance coming up. Let's play, you're playing in the Super Bowl. Like, let's say you're playing in the Super Bowl and you've got two options. You could get eight hours of fitful kind of restless sleep where you're tossing and turning, you're awake, you're worrying, you kind of get back to sleep, you kind of get back up again, just kind of eight hours of crummy sleep um, or six hours of really solid, uninterrupted, restful sleep. Which would you take? And of course, like we all know intuitively, you take the six hours of good sleep <laughs> over the eight hours of not great sleep, quote unquote sleep, right? So I think this is important when, you, when you've got some big thing coming up, you should really think more in terms of quality, not quantity, right? Try, if you normally get seven and a half and you try for eight and a half, that's likely to backfire. Bet, better to get six and a half of you know, good quality sleep than eight hours of kind of worried, restless, not very good sleep. Does that make sense? Yep, 100%. I, I completely agree. I, I just, I'll just tag, tag this one along, which uh, tag this one to, to it, which is, oftentimes I get I hear the same thing like somebody has a, a trip coming up or a big presentation coming up in two weeks and they're like what can I do to make sure I sleep really well that that night because it's so important well guess what like the more time you spend trying to figure out how are you going to sleep well that particular night because it's so important well the less you're going to sleep that particular night so uh, that is a myth that that backfires a lot yeah all right, what do you got? What's your next one? All right, so um, let's go to this one. Uh, where is it? Oh, yeah, this one. Okay, uh, so sleep debt. Um, I think I think probably everyone is familiar with that term. Uh, it's, you know, when you haven't slept enough, then you're kind of getting sleepy and you have a sleep debt. But a, common, a fairly common myth, I get a, a good amount of questions about this, is, Sorry, Dan. So just to be clear, like sleep debt is where you, if you normally sleep seven hours and then you have a stretch of days where you only sleep six hours each night, like the idea is each night you're building up this kind of debt of sleep you should have paid, but you didn't. Is, exactly, that, is that the idea? Exactly right. Okay. right. So thanks for that clarification. Make sure we clear to our listeners. And so with that in mind, here's the myth. The myth is that sleep debt accumulates indefinitely like the national debt, you know, <laughs> that is just like this, this like Times Square, like counter is like now it's 42 trillion and now it's five, like it just goes up and up and up and up and up and we're never ever going to be able to pay it back. Well, that's a myth. No, sleep debt, debt is not like that. You, you will be able to pay it back and it's not going to, even if you've had trouble sleeping for like, you know, 10 years, that doesn't mean it's going to take you 10 years to quote unquote, pay back your sleep debt. I, I think one thing that I kind of want to clarify when I talk about this is that when when you read uh, articles and you hear blog posts and whatnot about like oh you can't you can't pay back your sleep debt in just uh, you know by sleeping a lot one night well what the, what people are talking about then is like if you sleep very little for during the week if you only get let's say five hours of sleep from Monday through Friday and Saturday then you can't just sleep a lot Sunday night and be and expect to feel great that's true. But guess what? If you had trouble sleeping for you know years and you're starting to get good sleep, I bet that your sleep debt is paid off in a matter of you know days to weeks. So 
it does not just exponentially you know go up and up and up forever right yeah that's that's a great point um okay how about how about this one i need to understand what caused my insomnia in order to get better so this is an interesting one because I, people come into my office and I'm a therapist and the kind of the idea of any kind of therapy, including therapy for, for insomnia is you got to understand the origins, like origin stories are huge in, in people's understanding of therapy, right. And, and kind of resolving psychological dilemmas. Um, and it's, it's true to some extent that, um, what sort of set off or triggered or caused something can be useful. You know, it, it can be interesting to some extent. But the, the bigger point when it comes to insomnia is the factors that caused or, or triggered some initial difficulty sleeping are often completely irrelevant to the factors that are maintaining your difficulty sleeping. So um, the, like an analogy with, with this would be, um, say something, uh, you have a major negative event in your life. Like, um, you know, I don't know, you're boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you and it's just absolutely devastating, right? And you start um, emotionally eating, right? To deal with the pain. And then you, over weeks become months, months become years, and you've developed this habit of eating too much, of overeating, and you're gaining weight and it's not healthy. So th the fact that your overeating started with being broken up with, it it probably doesn't matter all that much for getting a handle on this habit of overeating. What's much, what's much more important is figuring out right now, what are the mechanics and dynamics that go on that, that um, influence why you tend to overeat. And it, it may be the case that it has nothing to do with that initial event five years ago. And so this is often the case with insomnia where someone initially develops trouble sleeping because some event, you know, they, um, a loved one passed away or something. And it's, it's very common to have um, trouble sleeping after some kind of big stressful event. It's completely normal, right? It'd be surprising if someone slept like a baby after, you know, after losing, losing a loved one, right? The, what happens though is people develop all sorts of unhelpful habits as a result of that initial event, right? So they start, they think, well, when I lay in bed, I start thinking about, you know, the husband that I lost, right? And that makes me anxious and sad, right? And so I'm going to, kind of do lots of stuff to, they kind of distract themselves from sleep in the bed. And they, this leads to all sorts of unhelpful habits around, around bedtime, right? So it's the, it's not the thing itself that initially triggered. The trigger for your insomnia is actually not all that important. It's the habits going on right now that are sustaining it and making it worse. What do you think about that? Yeah, again, um, I can't argue with you more. I, I, I feel it's, it's, it's interesting how um, you were, used the word irrelevant. I think it's a better one that uh, I, I usually say it's unimportant. Like the reason you have, you know, the reason you started having trouble initially at this point is actually not important to us at all. It's not actually that interesting. And uh, I felt I had something more insightful to add to that, but now it's not popping up in my brain. So I'm just going to say, yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And the bigger point is, e even if you do want to talk about it and explore it more, there, it, maybe it's somewhat interesting or um, helpful in, in some small ways, but that is never going to be sufficient to correct longstanding insomnia or sleep problems. Just because you understand the events and triggers um, 
of it initially, you're still going to have to do the work of dealing with all the unhelpful habits and mindsets that you've developed over the years of poor sleep and insomnia, um, regardless of how much you understand about the origins. So I think that's just important for, for expectations. Like understanding the origin story is not this like magic pill that's just going to make everything better. There's still a lot of hard work that's going to have to be done. Um, although not exactly hard work because <laughs> the golden rule of working through insomnia is not working too hard. Uh, but there are lots of other factors that are much more important, I think, than um, whatever triggered or initiated the difficulty with sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, let me just add one one more thing here, which is not it's it's you know not directly related to what we, we what, you know the myth you're bringing up here, but still similar. Which is you know one thing that confused me a lot uh, when I really started getting interested in insomnia was uh, people you know, people asking me like, oh, I read this study and I read this other study and this seems to show that not sleeping enough can cause you to have, you know, inflammatory bowel disease. And, and what really confused me in the beginning was like, why are you doing this? I was like, you have trouble sleeping as it is. Like, why are you researching and Googling and all this stuff? And I, I couldn't quite understand it. But then I, I, I read about this, the concept of like threat monitoring. And then, then, it, then it dawned upon me that this is actually quite uh, logical you know meaning um, essentially what happens when somebody has uh, starts having trouble sleeping ongoing trouble sleeping is that that part of your brain that's there to keep you safe identifies sleeplessness as a threat you know this is a threat to my health that part of your brain is saying it wants to try to keep you safe and one thing is it does is that it wants you to try to figure out why it's happening it takes you into like threat monitoring which is completely logical and now I'm going to use your example if you're gonna face a bear in, in in the wild somehow, right? Then it makes total sense to read up on like bear behavior, where do they hang out, how do they attack, how to escape it, right? Makes total sense. But when the threat is perceived, when it's not a quote unquote real threat, when it's a perceived threat, that uh, process of trying to figure out why you have it, what's going on, read up, threat monitoring, doesn't doesn't help at all. In fact, it, it's it's what fuels the problem. So I think a little similar to uh, the, the interest in like trying to figure out why, uh, you know, the origin story. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, I've, I've gotten in some, um, I'll say, uh, passionate arguments during at conferences with people about, um, and I think maybe we've talked about this on, on your podcast a couple of times, but I, I, I'm more and more, I think, uh, insomnia should be classified as an anxiety disorder, not as a sleep disorder. <laughs> and for that very reason, I, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a case of insomnia that didn't involve dysregulated threat monitoring, where in some way people, the, the kind of root of their difficulty sleeping is there is fear and the sort of response to fear, which is control and taking action and problem solving and worry about sleep or not being able to sleep. And so it's like any anxiety disorder, it's in a, an inappropriate fear of something that looks and feels dangerous, but isn't actually dangerous. 100%. And I'm really curious because yes, you did bring this up uh, at some point, I think it's actually the first time you guessed it in my podcast, but like the person that you argued with, what did they feel was the, you know, why did they feel it was, uh, they needed to argue with you? Well, be, I think because it, it looks, it's about sleep, right? The, the, it looks like sleep. It's the, it's all about, and that's what people feel is that they don't, they feel like they're not getting enough sleep and they want to get better sleep. And so sleep is the object. But if you ask me the, the better way to think about 
how to classify and, and think and just generally think about um, difficulties like um, insomnia or, or anything really that, that we do in our line of work is instead we should classify them by the underlying mechanisms, like what's causing the thing in the first place, I think is the better. This is where you can really tell how advanced any kind of field in medicine or health is by the extent to which they describe their they classify their their diseases based on descriptions and observations or understanding of mechanisms. Right. And the, the more advanced the field is, the more mechanistic they are in classifying their diseases. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I don't know, but it, it makes some sense that it, it looks like a sleep problem. Um, but really, the problem is not with your sleep. The problem exactly. is with the way you're thinking and behaving around your sleep. I absolutely 100% agree. And, and I, since you talk about classification, this is a reason that I thought about this the other day, Nick, and it's and it struck me that it's funny that I had never thought thought about this before. But uh, for anyone out there that um, isn't kind of familiar with terminology here, uh, you know, you classify acute insomnia as like less than three months, and like chronic insomnia as more than three months of trouble sleeping. But what struck me was like, why are we using the word chronic to describe something that's anything but that? Right? Like when people hear chronic, they hear it never goes away. It's always going to be there. It keeps coming back. Why are we using that word that, that kind of, you know, just sabotages, you know, the, the whole effort of helping people sleeping? It doesn't need to be chronic at all. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I, well, and I think it's because people, people's experience is I haven't slept well in 13 years right? That, that, that's kind of how it feels, right? That most days I'm just not sleeping well and my sleep just kind of, it's, it's easy to get these kind of beliefs kind of built up that we kind of characterize our sleep in, in kind of cartoony ways. But um, this, again, the sleep system is adaptive. If you, you know, if you, if you really get poor sleep one night, like your body is going to want to get, is going to want to make up for it the next night and your drive to sleep is going to be, is going to be bigger. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting point. We we should probably uh, we can have a we should call it something else, temporary insomnia or something. Right. Okay. Let's we're uh, we're getting close to the end here. Let's each do one more uh, in the next five or ten minutes. Um, so pick your pick your pick your best zinger for the end. Yeah, I had two. Let's see. Hmm. I think I'm gonna pick this one. Um, that uh, sleep that sleep quality deteriorates dramatically with age, and I think this it's it's mm. it's uh, it's it's an important one because I do have patients that, you know, I see in clinic and I'm like, Oh, how are you doing? They're like, I'm pretty good. I'm not sleeping that great, but you know, I'm 68 years old. And they're like, tell me more. And they're like, well, you know, I go to bed at nine and then I just, I don't fall asleep until 11. Then I wake up three times and I'm up for like you know, three hours during the night and I'm, I'm taking melatonin. And I'm like, no, 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 that, that is not, you know, when we say like you sleep a little less when you're getting older, that is, that's not what's going on. So some people have this, it's funny because for the, for the most part, uh, people tend to maybe have too high expectations of, of, of uh, how well they should sleep, etc. Mm -hmm. But there are also people, particularly elderly, who just accept that they're sleeping really, really, really poorly and think of it as like normal aging. Uh. Yeah, I've, I've heard that um, the change with, as we, and actually this would be interesting to have you verify, I've heard that the the, the nature of sleep does change a bit that are, um, you know, that you don't maybe do as much, you have more kind of time in light, lighter stages of sleep than deeper stages of sleep, but that the overall, your overall uh, need for sleep 
um, doesn't change and that maybe your, your sleep gets more fragmented, right? You maybe have to use the restroom more often, or you've got aches and pains and medical conditions that make it harder to get consistent kind of high quality sleep, but it doesn't mean your overall need for sleep changes as you get older. Yeah, I think uh, that's, that's my understanding too. And what is, what I can definitely verify for sure is that if you look at sleep, you know, from a kind of neurophysiological standpoint, a child like a three-year-old will have a lot of delta sleep, slow wave sleep, and a good amount of REM sleep, and not so much of that superficial stage two sleep. Look at a 72-year-old male, and they will not have any deep sleep. They will have a little bit of REM sleep. They have mostly stage two sleep. That is true. But then um, the total sleep time, I think maybe uh, an older person may need a, like a slightly less than a younger person, perhaps, but that's not very significant. Their sleep is a little bit more fragmented. But again, your experience of sleep doesn't need to change. I mean, you, you can still be an, an elderly person and, and, and feel rested and have, you know, uh, and perceive that you're good sleep, you know, regardless of those changes, you know. Yeah, good one. I think that's, really, that's really important. All right, so I'll, I'll round it off with um, my last one here, which is I shouldn't exercise in the evenings. Um, so this, I, I've really become, um, more, uh, sensitive to this one because I feel like just more and more, I, I'm understanding more and more that the benefits of exercise and physical activity, which are just so numerous. I mean, basically universal, everything from obviously just about everything in your physical health gets better with regular exercise. And it's more and more, I think we're realizing the same is true for, um, mental health. Like there's pretty good research that for all but the most extreme forms of depression and anxiety, regular exercise is as good a treatment as either medication or therapy, which is just like pretty shocking, right? It's, that's, that's a pretty uh, amazing thing. So it's hard. And then also exercise is one of those things you actually have control over that can, to some extent, um, help you with your sleep, right? When, when you exercise, it does improve your sleep drive, um, your need for sleep. And so if there is something you actually want to do to improve your odds of getting better sleep, um, have, being a pretty regular exerciser, or at least um, increasing your level of physical activity is, is a decent idea. Now, the problem is people have this idea in their head that like, I can't exercise in the evening because it's going to interrupt my, it's going to make it hard for me to fall asleep. Um, and what I usually tell people is, first of all, like you would, you would have to be exercising really hard and then trying to go to sleep like right away. Like you go to the gym and you run five miles on the treadmill, you get your heart rate way up, and then you immediately get home and get into bed and try and go to sleep. Now, of course, if, if your heart rate is still that high, right, that is gonna make it somewhat difficult to fall asleep. But almost always, and I'll, I want your take on this too, Daniel, um, if it's within, as long as your exercise isn't like an hour or, or even a couple hours, if you wanna be really conservative, um, it, there is almost no chance that that is going to impact the quality of your your sleep or your ability to fall asleep. But for a lot of people, I mean, people are busy and it can be hard to find time to exercise. So if you are eliminating the evenings as a time to exercise when that's the only time you can get it, you're really depriving yourself of a, a super important um, tool we have for just kind of overall physical and mental health. Um, so I, I really feel it's more and more important to let people know it's okay to exercise in the evening. As long as you're not exercising hard right before getting into bed, you really don't have to worry about much. What do you think? You concur? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there were a couple of things I, I should have written them down. I should have keep, keep a pen here. But I did a couple of things that I thought were really important that came to my mind as we were talking here. The first one was, you know what? Uh, during my eight years as a sleep physician, I've never ever seen a patient that had insomnia because they exercise in the evening. You know, that, that just doesn't happen. That in itself tells you that, you know, it's a myth. Uh, sure, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like if you exercise really heavily and then you like immediately go to bed, then yeah, you're probably not going to fall asleep for all, but nobody does that. And then another thing is like when somebody makes the decision to not exercise so that they can sleep better, well then the problem there is that you're, again, you're trying to control sleep. Again, it's the fear of not sleeping, that you know, accommodating insomnia, doing things so that you can get better sleep, that is a big problem. And, um, and I thought there was another thing I wanted to add to that too, but uh, no, I, I'll leave it there. So I, I totally agree. And again, like do, you know, avoiding things so that you can sleep better is never a good idea. And I actually did remember the last thing I want to add here, Nick, which is I think exercise is amazing. It's really good. But again, you always have to um, think about your intention, you know, because uh, you do also see people that that decide to exercise so they can sleep better, not because they enjoy it and they go out running and they're like every step they take is like, I hope I can sleep, I hope I can sleep, I hope I can sleep more, I hope I can sleep. <laughs> right. And then it becomes a sleep effort, just increases the pressure sleep and then it can backfire. That's a great point. It's I see the same thing with um, meditation or like mindfulness things. People use those to try and make themselves fall asleep. And it's not it's not about the technique. It's like you say, it's about the intention behind it that's really going to determine how well you sleep or not. All right, Daniel, this has been awesome. I've had a ton of fun. I'm definitely going to have to get you back on the show. Um, maybe on a topic where we disagree more because I feel like we, uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we pretty much agreed on everything. Um, but I feel like this stuff is important to hear and it's important to hear from um, you know, I, I like to think qualified, uh, professionals, you know, we, we spent a lot of time in school and keeping up on the latest research and, and obviously seeing, you know, hundreds of clients and patients in our own practices. So, um, yeah, I hope this has been helpful and, and Daniel, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, now you've, you've got a, you do a lot of good work with sleep. So where are some places, um, people can go to learn more about you and your work and, um, how you help people sleep? Oh, yeah. First of all, thanks so much for having me on, Nick. It's been a pleasure. And you, you've been on my show three times. So this was really, really nice to be able to um, uh, come join you here. But uh, I would say definitely YouTube is where I do most of my work. I do every week at least a couple episodes. Uh, mostly now it's become a Q&A show. I mostly answer people's questions. So that's, that's I would definitely say, you know, just search my name or Insomnia Insight on YouTube and you find them. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.